Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we return to the brutal and guttural world of Hyboria and Conan the Barbarian. This is one of the earlier stories in Conan's timeline. He is a mercenary with a reputation, motivated by money and his own base desires, but also with a moral code that we see just glimpses of in this tale. As always with Conan, this is a violent story, not for the faint-hearted, but the language continues to shine with bombastic majesty. It's time to pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part one of Rogues in the House by Robert E. Howard. Chapter One One fled, one dead, one sleeping in a golden bed. Old Rhyme At a court festival, Nabonidus, the red priest who was the real ruler of the city, touched Murillo, the young aristocrat, courteously on the arm. Murillo turned to meet the priest's enigmatic gaze and to wonder at the hidden meaning therein. No words passed between them, but Nabonidus bowed and handed Murillo a small gold cask. The young nobleman, knowing that Nabonidus did nothing without reason, excused himself at the first opportunity and returned hastily to his chamber. There he opened the cask and found within it a human ear, which he recognised by a peculiar scar upon it. He broke into a profuse sweat and was no longer in doubt about the meaning in the red priest's glance. But Morello, for all his scented black curls and foppish apparel, was no weakling to bend his neck to the knife without a struggle. He did not know whether Nabonidus was merely playing with him or giving him a chance to go into voluntary exile, but the fact that he was still alive and at liberty proved that he was to be given at least a few hours, probably for meditation. However, he needed no meditation for decision. What he needed was a tool. And fate furnished that tool, working among the dives and brothels of the squalid quarters, even while the young nobleman shivered and pondered in the part of the city occupied by the purple-towered marble and ivory palaces of the aristocracy. There was a priest of Anu, whose temple, rising at the fringe of the slum district, was the scene of more than devotions. The priest was fat and full-fed, and he was at once a fence for stolen articles and a spy for the police. He worked a thriving trade both ways because the district on which he bordered was the maze, a tangle of muddy, winding alleys and sordid dens frequented by the bolder thieves in the kingdom. Daring above all were a Gunderman deserter from the mercenaries and a barbaric Chimerian. Because of the priest of Anu, the Gunderman was taken and hanged in the market square, but the Chimerian fled, and learning in devious ways of the priest's treachery, he entered the temple of Anu by night and cut off the priest's head. There followed a great turmoil in the city, but the search for the killer proved fruitless until a woman betrayed him to the authorities and led a captain of the guard and his squad to the hidden chamber where the barbarian lay drunk. Waking to stupefied but ferocious life when they seized him, he disembowelled the captain, burst through his assailants and would have escaped but for the liquor that still clouded his senses. Bewildered and half-blinded, he missed the open door in his headlong flight and dashed his head against the stone wall so terrifically that he knocked himself senseless. When he came to, 
He was in the strongest dungeon in the city, shackled to the wall with chains not even his barbaric thews could break. To this cell came Murillo, masked and wrapped in a wide black cloak. The Chimerians surveyed him with interest, thinking him the executioner sent to dispatch him. Murillo set him at rights and regarded him with no less interest. Even in the dim light of the dungeon, with his limbs loaded with chains, the primitive power of the man was evident. His mighty body and thick-muscled limbs combined the strength of a grizzly with the quickness of a panther. Under his tangled black mane, his blue eyes blazed with unquenchable savagery. "'Would you like to live?' asked Murillo. The barbarian grunted, new interest glinting in his eyes. "'If I arrange for your escape, will you do a favour for me?' the aristocrat asked. The Chimerian did not speak, but the intentness of his gaze answered for him. "'I want you to kill a man for me.' "'Who?' Murillo's voice sank to a whisper. "'Nabonidus, the king's priest.' The Chimerian showed no sign of surprise or perturbation. He had none of the fear or reverence for authority that civilization instills in men. King or beggar, it was all one to him. Nor did he ask why Murillo had come to him when the quarters were full of cutthroats outside prisons. "'When am I to escape?' he demanded. "'Within the hour. There is but one guard in this part of the dungeon at night. He can be bribed. He has been bribed.' See, here are the keys to your chains. I'll remove them, and after I have been gone an hour, the guard, Athicus, will unlock the door to your cell. You will bind him with strips torn from your tunic, so when he is found, the authorities will think you are rescued from the outside, and will not suspect him. Go at once to the house of the Red Priest, and kill him. Then go to the rat's den, where a man will meet you and give you a pouch of gold and a horse. With those you can escape from the city and flee the country. "'Take off these cursed chains now!' demanded the Chimerian, "'and have the guard bring me food. By crom, I have lived on mouldy bread and water for a whole day, and I'm nigh on to famishing.' "'It shall be done. But remember, you are not to escape until I have had time to reach my home.' Freed of his chains, the barbarian stood up and stretched his heavy arms, enormous in the gloom of the dungeon. Murillo again felt that if any man in the world could accomplish the task he had set, this Chimerian could. With a few repeated instructions, he left the prison, first directing Athicus to take a platter of beef and ale in to the prisoner. He knew that he could trust the guard, not only because of the money he had paid, but also because of certain information he possessed regarding the man. When he returned to his chamber, Murillo was in full control of his fears. Nabonidus would strike through the king, of that he was certain, and since the royal guardsmen were not knocking at his door, it was certain that the priest had said nothing to the king so far. Tomorrow he would speak, beyond a doubt, if he lived to see tomorrow. Murillo believed the Chimerian would keep faith with him. Whether the man would be able to carry out his purpose remained to be seen. Men had attempted to assassinate the Red Priest before, and they had died in hideous and nameless ways. But they had been products of the cities of men, lacking the wolfish instincts of the barbarian. The instant that Murillo, turning the gold cask with its severed ear in his hands, had learned through his secret channels that the Chimerian had been captured, 
he had seen a solution of his problem. In his chamber again, he drank a toast to the man, whose name was Conan, and to his success that night, and while he was drinking, one of his spies brought him the news that Athicus had been arrested and thrown into prison. The Chimerian had not escaped. Murillo felt his blood turn to ice again. He could see in this twist of fate only the sinister hand of Nabonidus, and an eerie obsession began to grow in him that the Red Priest was more than human, a sorcerer who read the minds of his victims and pulled strings on which they danced like puppets. With despair came desperation. Girding a sword beneath his black cloak, he left his house by a hidden way and hurried through the deserted streets. It was just at midnight when he came to the house of Nabonidus, looming blackly among the walled gardens that separated it from the surrounding estates. The wall was high, but not impossible to negotiate. Nabonidus did not put his trust in mere barriers of stone. It was what was inside the wall that was to be feared. What these things were, Murillo did not know precisely. He knew there was at least a huge savage dog that roamed the gardens, and had on occasion torn an intruder into pieces as a hound rends a rabbit. What else there might be, he did not care to conjecture. Men who had been allowed to enter the house on brief legitimate business reported that Nabonidus dwelled among rich furnishings, yet simply, attended by a surprisingly small number of servants. Indeed, they mentioned only one as having been visible, a tall, silent man called Jocka. Someone else, presumably a slave, had been heard moving about in the recesses of the house, but this person no one had ever seen. The greatest mystery of this mysterious house was Nabonidus himself, whose power of intrigue and grasp on international politics had made him the strongest man in the kingdom. People, chancellor and king moved puppet-like on the strings he worked. Murillo scaled the wall and dropped down into the gardens, which were expanses of shadow, darkened by clumps of shrubbery and waving foliage. No light shone in the windows of the house, which loomed so blackly among the trees. The young nobleman stole stealthily, yet swiftly, through the shrubs. Momentarily he expected to hear the baying of the great dog, and to see its giant body hurtle through the shadows. He doubted the effectiveness of his sword against such an attack but he did not hesitate, as well die beneath the fangs of a beast as of the headsman. He stumbled over something bulky and yielding. Bending close in the dim starlight, he made out a limp shape on the ground. It was the dog that guarded the gardens. It was dead. Its neck was broken, and it bore what seemed to be the marks of great fangs. Murillo felt that no human being had done this. The beast had met a monster more savage than itself, Murillo glared nervously at the cryptic masses of bush and shrub, then, with a shrug of his shoulders, he approached the silent house. The first door he tried proved to be unlocked. He entered warily, sword in hand, and found himself in a long, shadowy hallway, dimly illuminated by a light that gleamed through the hangings at the other end. Complete silence hung over the whole house. Murillo glided along the hall and halted to peer through the hangings. He looked into a lighted room, over the windows of which velvet curtains were drawn so closely as to allow no beam to shine through. 
The room was empty, insofar as human life was concerned, but it had a grisly occupant nevertheless. In the midst of a wreckage of furniture and torn hangings that told of a fearful struggle lay the body of a man. The form lay on its belly, but the head was twisted about so that the chin rested behind a shoulder. The features, contorted into an awful grin, seemed to leer at the horrified nobleman. For the first time that night, Murillo's resolution wavered. He cast an uncertain glance back the way he came. Then the memory of the headsman's block and axe steeled him, and he crossed the room, swerving to avoid the grinning horror sprawled in its midst. Though he had never seen the man before, he knew from former descriptions that it was Jocca, Nabonidus's saturnine servant. He peered through a curtained door into a broad circular chamber, banded by a gallery halfway between the polished floor and the lofty ceiling. This chamber was furnished as if for a king. In the midst of it stood an ornate mahogany table, loaded with vessels of wine, and Murillo stiffened. In a great chair whose broad back was toward him, he saw a figure whose habiliments were familiar. He glimpsed an arm in a red sleeve resting on the arm of the chair. The head, clad in the familiar scarlet hood of the gown, was bent forward as in meditation. Just so had Murillo seen Nabonidus sit a hundred times in the royal court. Cursing the pounding of his own heart, the young nobleman stole across the chamber, sword extended, his whole frame poised for the thrust. His prey did not move, nor seem to hear his cautious advance. Was the red priest asleep, or was it a corpse which slumped in that great chair? The length of a single stride separated Murillo from his enemy, when suddenly the man in the chair rose and faced him. The blood went suddenly from Murillo's features. His sword fell from his fingers and rang on the polished floor. A terrible cry broke from his livid lips. It was followed by the thud of a falling body. Then, once more, silence reigned over the house of the Red Priest. Chapter 2 Shortly after Murillo left the dungeon where Conan the Chimerian was confined, Athicus brought the prisoner a platter of food, which included, among other things, a huge joint of beef and a tankard of ale. Conan fell to voraciously, and Athicus made a final round of the cells to see that all was in order and that none should witness the pretended prison break. It was while he was so occupied that a squad of guardsmen marched into the prison and placed him under arrest. Murillo had been mistaken when he assumed this arrest denoted discovery of Conan's planned escape. It was another matter. Athicus had become careless in his dealings with the underworld, and one of his past sins had caught up with him. Another jailer took his place, a stolid, dependable creature whom no amount of bribery could have shaken from his duty. He was unimaginative, but he had an exalted idea of the importance of his job. After Athicus had been marched away to be formally arraigned before a magistrate, this jailer made the rounds of the cell as a matter of routine. As he passed that of Conan, his sense of propriety was shocked and outraged to see the prisoner free of his chains and in the act of gnawing the last shreds of meat from a huge beef bone. The jailer was so upset that he made the mistake of entering the cell alone without calling guards from the other parts of the prison. It was his first mistake in the line of duty, and his last. 
Conan brained him with the beef bone, took his poignard and his keys, and made a leisurely departure. As Murillo had said, only one guard was on duty there at night. The Chimerian passed him outside the walls by means of the keys he had taken, and presently emerged into the outer air, as free as if Murillo's plan had been successful. In the shadows of the prison walls, Conan paused to decide his next course of action. It occurred to him that since he had escaped through his own actions, he owed nothing to Murillo. Yet it had been the young nobleman who had removed his chains and had the food sent to him, without either of which his escape would have been impossible. Conan decided that he was indebted to Murillo, and since he was a man who discharged his obligations, eventually he determined to carry out his promise to the young aristocrat, but first he had some business of his own to attend to. He discarded his ragged tunic and moved off through the night naked but for a loincloth. As he went, he fingered the poignard he had captured, a murderous weapon with a broad, double-edged blade nineteen inches long. He slunk along alleys and shadowed plazas until he came to the district which was his destination, the maze. Along its labyrinthian ways he went with the certainty of familiarity. It was indeed a maze of black alleys and enclosed courts and devious ways, of furtive sounds and stenches. There was no paving on the streets, mud and filth mingled in an unsavoury mess. Sewers were unknown, refuse was dumped into the alleys to form reeking heaps and puddles. Unless a man walked with care, he was likely to lose his footing and plunge waist-deep into nauseous pools. Nor was it uncommon to stumble over a corpse lying with its throat cut or its head knocked in in the mud. Honest folk shunned the maze with good reason. Conan reached his destination without being seen, just as one he wished fervently to meet was leaving it. As the Chimerian slunk into the courtyard below, the girl who had sold him to the police was taking leave of her new lover in a chamber one flight up. This young thug, her door closed behind him, groped his way down a creaking flight of stairs intent on his own meditations, which, like those of most of the denizens of the maze, had to do with the unlawful acquirement of property. Partway down the stairs, he halted suddenly, his hair standing up, a vague bulk crouched in the darkness before him, a pair of eyes blazed like the eyes of a hunting beast. A beast-like snarl was the last thing he heard in life. As the monster lurched against him, and a keen blade ripped through his belly, he gave one gasping cry and slumped down limply on the stairway. The barbarian loomed above him for an instant, ghoul-like, his eyes burning in the gloom. He knew the sound was heard, but the people in the maze were careful to attend to their own business. A death cry on darkened stairs was nothing unusual. Later, someone would venture to investigate, but only after a reasonable lapse of time. Conan went up the stairs and halted at the door he knew well of old. It was fastened within, but his blade passed between the door and the jam and lifted the bar. He stepped inside, closing the door after him, and faced the girl who had betrayed him to the police. The wench was sitting cross-legged in her shift on her unkempt bed. She turned white and stared at him as if at a ghost. She had heard the cry from the stairs, and she saw the red stain on the poniard in his hand, but she was too filled with terror on her own account to waste any time lamenting the evident fate of her lover. 
Conan did not reply. He merely stood and glared at her with his burning eyes, testing the edge of his poniard with a calloused thumb. At last he crossed the chamber while she cowered back against the wall, sobbing frantic pleas for mercy. Grasping her yellow locks with no gentle hand, he dragged her off the bed. Thrusting his blade in the sheath, he tucked his squirming captive under his left arm and strode to the window. As in most houses of that type, a ledge encircled each story, caused by the continuance of the window ledges. Conan kicked the window open and stepped out on that narrow band. If any had been near or awake, they would have witnessed the bizarre sight of a man moving carefully along the ledge, carrying a kicking, half-naked wench under his arm. They would have been no more puzzled than the girl. Reaching the spot he sought, Conan halted, gripping the wall with his free hand. Inside the building rose a sudden clamour, showing that the body had at last been discovered. His captive whimpered and twisted, renewing her importunities. Conan glanced down into the muck and slime of the alleys below. He listened briefly to the clamour inside and the pleas of the wench. Then he dropped her with great accuracy into a cesspool. He enjoyed her kickings and flounderings and the concentrated venom of her profanity for a few seconds, and even allowed himself a low rumble of laughter. Then he lifted his head, listened to the growing tumult within the building, and decided it was time for him to kill Nabonidus. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the first half of Rogues in the House. If you did enjoy it, please consider supporting The Well Told Tale on Patreon at patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's a link in the description. I'll be back next week with the conclusion of this tale. I hope you can join me.